Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. Today, we've got on the show Katie Morford for you guys. And I'm particularly excited for you guys to hear from Katie because I think her story is going to align with so many of you. Her role as a mom and how that informed what she did next and then how she was able to grow her offering from there. So Katie, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I'm so happy to be here. I can't wait to unpack all of this with you. For our audience, you're a three-time author, a cookbook author. You have your own platform. You work with different brands. You have a blog. There's so many things in this kind of world that you do. And you started out as a certified nutritionist, correct? A registered dietitian, yeah. Okay. Thank you for making that distinction. So kind of give us that timeline. Like, where did that all begin? Because there's so much to the Katie Morford world. Right out of college, I worked in food PR for probably three or four years. And I loved all the writing in that job, but the rest of it just wasn't resonating. Um, And I'd always been really interested in food and nutrition. So I decided to go back to school. I got my master's in nutrition and became a registered dietitian really with the idea that I wanted to use that skill set and write about food and nutrition. And that's what I did after grad school for, I mean, it really wasn't that long before I got pregnant and sort of hung on for a little bit. (laughs) I'm still working part-time with my baby. And then I had a second and then a third and really took probably a a good 10 years, stepped out of the, the professional workforce and, you know, full on with the little ones. Then my my youngest was in maybe kindergarten or first grade. And I sort of felt like, okay, I have a little more room here. And yeah. I then also felt really intimidated and overwhelmed because I felt so out of touch. And, and I'm sure this is something so many women can relate to. And I, I just kind of struggled with like, how do I start? Like, where do I, what do I do? And I, I just... I was almost like minimizing what I had been doing. And then I sort of had this total Oprah moment where sort of an aha moment where I was like, I've been nourishing children and cooking for children for 10 years. That's my skill set. That's my expertise. So I really combined that with my background, the culinary and, and nutrition background. And that's sort of when I started my blog and I started, um, you know, collaborating with a a publishing house on my first cookbook. And it just all bloomed from there. Yeah. It's interesting how, and you say this in your, your bio on the blog, uh, you talk about how the thing, having children, becoming a mom that you thought was taking you away from your work 
is in fact the thing that informed your work. Yeah. And how it really grew from there. And then it just dawned on me as you were talking about what was I doing for 10 years. We just did a podcast with Emma Wittard, who's a coach. And she talks a lot about how have you accumulated 10,000 hours in a particular skill, sort of unbeknownst to you. Right. And that's exactly what you did. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that transition. What was the first thing you did? Because again, our listeners are going to totally relate to the intimidation that you just talked about, the gap in technology, and that I'm a mom, I'm busy doing that role. Yeah. How do I, how do I start? Where did you start? Well, I actually, I mean, this is sort of, I ha- always have this idea of just like throwing myself off a cliff. Sometimes you just have to do that. Yeah. And I had heard about this uh, food writers conference I mean, I had been so out of the loop for 10 years, but I heard about this. I don't even remember how. And I just signed up for it. I traveled across the country to West Virginia, didn't know a soul. Uh, it was all these movers and shakers in the food and culinary and writing world. I remember I was so nervous and I just <laughs> did it. And I met a few people there, including an editor at Chronicle Books. And he just saw a spark or something like he was interested in working with me. And so we kind of kept in touch. And then when I had an idea for a first book, I pitched it to him and they went for it. It was definitely just right place, right time, staying connected. And then while I was writing that book, I was like, oh, I probably should have a blog, this blog thing people are doing. So that's when I started Mom's Kitchen Handbook. Okay, so give us a little context. How long ago was that? My first book came out in 2013, and okay. it does take a while, you know, the, the process sure. of writing a book. So I think the process of both starting writing the book and the, starting the blog was about 2010. Okay, so that's perfect. That's exactly, yeah. I say often on this podcast, if we're not telling the truth, we're not actually empowering women. So I love to get those details. Mm-hmm. One more question. From the moment you met that gentleman from Chronicle to when you guys actually moved forward with a book deal, how long were you staying in touch? How long were you cultivating that relationship? I'd say it was probably like a year. Okay. You know, I didn't know if anything was going to become of it. Sure. But I, th- I think it's important because again, you took that first leap. Mm-hmm. You dove off the cliff and you went to that conference. But meeting that person, that took another year before there was something really that felt like, okay, we have a clear idea of where this could go. And then three yeah. years of writing and and testing and all of that. Yeah. So I think it's really helpful, again, for our, our listeners to have context. So thank you for that. And then you're writing the book, you start with the blog, how often are you publishing? What do you know about technology and kind of, you know, all the things with taking pictures and editing and all of that. Give us that background. Yeah. <laughs> the technology piece has always been really hard for me to this yeah. day. I just create, you know, created a blog. I don't even remember what it looked like at the time. It probably was really unattractive. And I was, you know, wrote a few pieces and I have a good friend who's a graphic designer and she said, you know, you kind of need pictures. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Katie. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I have to know about nutrition and I have to write and I right. have to do recipes and yeah. I have to learn how to do pictures. And she was like, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was a huge learning curve for me. It took me a really long time to learn how to, you know, style food and take photos. And part of that time was also 
recognizing, and I think so many women in, you know, entrepreneurial roles, you have to realize like, okay, I'm not a technology expert and I'm not a graphic designer. So I need to invest in this business. And I hired, actually hired my friend and she designed the first, you know, website and, you know, hired a developer to help me with the technical aspect of things as well. And how often were you putting that content out? I mean, back then I probably was posting, you know, once or twice a week. And they were strictly recipes or were you pointing people to other outside sources? You know, the content has evolved over the years, but I was writing about really what I was wondering about in my own life Mm -hmm. and or things that I was getting asked about a lot. So it was, you know, hot nutrition topics. It was a lot of about feeding kids, you know, how to get kids to eat vegetables, food waste, all kinds of things. And then always, you know, sort of my... I think sweet spot is in recipes are things that are nourishing and not intimidating, you know, trying to make healthy food really beautiful and accessible. It's obvious when you go onto the blog, there's so many things. I mean, I dug in a little bit knowing that we were going to have this <laughs> chat and I was like, I have to go back to that and I want to try and make that. So you, you've accomplished that. And what was the name of the first book? The first book is Best Lunchbox Ever. So it was a guide to, you know, how to put together a a healthy, yummy, easy school lunch or desk lunch. Okay. I saw the little trailer for that. It was adorable. And your girls were so little. I know. Isn't that crazy? How old are they now? 19, 22, and just turned 25. So as your children begin to grow and when they get in those teen years, they need you less and they need you more. There's this Mm -hmm. weird sort of tension, right? Yeah. They start to be able to drive themselves. So those practical things, they don't need as much, but emotionally, they absolutely need you to be really present. How did you balance that tension of, I want to be a present parent And this is a tough question to ask because we don't ask it of men and we hear this all the time. But it's an important one, I think, for our listener who's struggling with this. But also like pursuing something that's meaningful for you and giving you life and giving you joy. How did you sort of manage that or or did you feel like you did? I mean, it's such a hard balance. Um, I do think I am lucky in that my work is in my home. I mean, Mm -hmm. my kitchen is you know, half my office. And I mean, although I have to focus when I'm developing recipes, there can be things happening without it throwing me off balance. So that is a a differentiating factor from a lot of people. And I also felt like when I was with them, focusing on being really with them and also reminding myself, I think particularly, I mean, this is important for boys and girls. Yeah. I'm not saying it's more important for girls, but I do happen to have three daughters. And I, yeah. knowing that they were seeing me like following my bliss and doing what like fills me up, um, I felt like that was important. And they were sure. really proud of me. And that was nice to see. Sure. Absolutely. Having examples of what that can look like, I think is a value we cannot underestimate for both, as you said, our daughters and our sons. I want my sons to see and to have that expectation that women can do those things, women can play those multiple roles. And I think their generation is very different than ours and has sort of taken that on 
um, yeah. in a different way. Did the work that you chose to do, because you could do a lot of things in the food world, mm -hmm. right? You could have gone in multiple directions, including, you know, packaging lunches for people or whatever. Did the work that you chose to do informed by the way you wanted to live your life as a parent? I think it was a combination of, I really, I wanted to be in my home. Yeah. And also I was and am doing things that are just things that I love to do. I love to write. I love to cook. And that's most of what makes up my work. Yeah. And it probably didn't suck for them to come home to taste test all those things that you had yeah. just made. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. They recognize that they, you know, grew up eating really good food, but they do tell stories about how, you know, when you're testing recipes, like if I'm doing a recipe for a book, I'm going to cook it probably four, sometimes five times. And there yeah. are certain dishes that they just cannot eat <laughs> because they're like, never again. Ugh. I don't feel too sorry for them, given the fact that yeah. all of them ate pretty well during those years. <laughs> Many of our listeners are hearing your story and either thinking, well, Katie must have always wanted to go out on her own or she must have wanted to be an entrepreneur. Is that the case? Was that something that you were pursuing or did it unfold? I don't know. I've never been one of these people who, you know, at the beginning of the year writes down my one year goal, my five year goals. I just sort of very organically follow what I'm drawn to. And so I didn't think that I was going to be an entrepreneur or not be an entrepreneur. It just has how it unfolded for me. There's something about that that feels like the freedom, whether it was intentional that you gave it to yourself or you just, you know, by design, that's how Katie moves through the world. That freedom sort of allowed you to put one foot in front of the other because you were just working with what you had and what you had accomplished and what you wanted next versus the big picture. Yeah. And so you were able to grow, it sounds like, your kind of multi-platform world one step at a time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I think that's true. So we know that you had the first book and then you're blogging. Now you've got to grow this audience. Like you've got to make sure that people are coming to you and staying connected with what you're saying so that you can either write the next book so that, mm -hmm. you know, the next publisher is like, hey, she's got an audience. She's built something in here. How did you do that? Because that's an entrepreneurial, whether you intended to be an entrepreneur or not, everything about that is an entrepreneurial endeavor, you know, viewing, growing a business and how am I going to monetize these things? Tell us a little bit about that. Part of it is, I think, trying to really connect with people. I mean, even though it's not just one person I'm connecting with, I almost think of it like that. Like sometimes I'll think of specific people in my life when I'm writing and I'm writing to that person mm -hmm. because I feel like that's, especially in this type of work, when you're talking about kids and nourishment, I feel like that's really important. And being really tuned into what people, like what the pain points are and trying to answer the call. So what's hard um, whether it's yeah. just getting dinner on the table and how to do that or, you know, navigating life with a, you know, really picky kid or struggling with, you know, 10 pounds of extra postpartum weight that is driving you crazy or whatever it is. Um, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but 
Yeah, I think you are. I think part of what you're saying is your focus group you were surrounded with, right? Yeah. You had kids yeah. and you had other moms who were complaining about whatever those pain points were. So you were constantly getting feedback and data, yeah. which informed the work that you could do um, and, and in fact did. What about growing the numbers? Did you ever worry about how many people are paying attention to my blog? Or was oh, yeah. it sort of a, you did? Okay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. So, so I think that's a big one now. People are intimidated because they feel like, especially with social media, everybody's done it, right? There's nothing new under the sun. What, what do I have to say? Mm-hmm. How are people going to come to my platform and listen to my point of view? How did you overcome that? Was it that you were getting great feedback? And how did you actually grow those numbers? Well, I still have those feelings. I still, you know, feel like, is anyone listening? I don't know if that ever goes away. I don't know if it's Mm. just human nature. What I try to tell myself is, even if I'm just supporting one mom who is having a hard day or whatever, you know, to me, that's worth it. Like if I get one comment on my Instagram about making a difference for someone like that is really meaningful. And I think for someone starting out, that might be helpful. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, it's going to take time and to be patient. And in the meantime, whatever you're doing is maybe supporting somebody. Sure. I remember an interview I did with Jenny of Jenny's Ice Cream, and she talked about, for her, it was never about Bit, big thinking, which is hilarious, right? Because she yeah. has this giant ice cream empire. But she talked about everything she did was for a single person. Mm-hmm. She had a single person in mind when she created the brand, when she creates each flavor. She's thinking about one person and that her kind of steps to success were to continue to think about a single person. Yeah. When they come into my store, what's the experience I want that person to have when they're tasting my ice cream? And now that, you know, she said she's shifting to whatever's next for her, she said, I'm still thinking that way. How do I impact one person? Yeah. And I think it's similar. I think about that. And I think about, I don't know, there's so much vitriol and conflict and ugliness in the social sphere. Yeah. And I always just try to be like a really soft place to land. Mm. Again, especially most of my my people are women. Probably most of them are mothers. It's not an easy job. And I just try to make it a little bit easier. Yeah. People can sense that. Your audience, your community can sense that. And then they go back for more because who doesn't want a soft place to land, right? Yeah. And the other thing I would say which can be really hard because there's so many personalities and voices. And as you said, like in nutrition, there's a lot of different directions I could have gone. If you can just like hone in on what's your voice, Mm. you know, who you are, you know, just be true to that. I think that stands out. Did you know what your voice was when you first started or did that get sharpened, that clarity come into focus as you moved through your writing? I think my voice has been fairly consistent, but I think my awareness and confidence in just being who I am and not having to be, I don't have to be an expert on sports nutrition. You know, I don't have to be an expert on, I don't know, something else. I, I, this is what I do and it's enough. Yeah. 
It is enough. How much of that just comes with the wisdom of growing uh, wiser? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure. Which is an important thing to say for our listeners, because I think some of them think that starting something new, taking on a new endeavor after 40, in your 50s, you know, in your 60s, whatever, it's too late. You don't have that that point of view or, Mm -hmm. and in fact, that's exactly when you have it. That's exactly when you have really something to say. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that is, um, one of the best parts about being at this phase of life. I agree. I just have to ask, how old were you when you launched this? If you don't mind me asking. I'm trying to think my daughter was, I think I was about 40 when I started, like, you know, yeah. really doing this stuff. You're truly preaching to the choir here then. So you've been doing this for a number of years and you talked about creatively that gap of, I didn't really know technology. I wasn't a photographer. Like I was a food writer and I knew how to create recipes. What were the entrepreneurial gaps, the business gaps that you had to fill? Like maybe it was finance. I don't want to put anything in your mouth, but you know, finance, or maybe it was, growing an audience. Mm -hmm. What were some of those things and how did you overcome those things? Well, I I think, as I said earlier, like recognizing where you're not strong, where you don't have the skill set, that was a big thing for me, Mm -hmm. giving myself permission to hire people, especially early in the process because I wasn't making money. Maybe I was maybe making a little bit of money. Yeah. And that was a hard transition, but definitely the technology, any kind of web design, finance for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like my skill set is much more in the creative realm. So almost anything that wasn't in that realm is where I need support. I will say I really hated the photography in the beginning. I felt resentful that I had to do it. Because it already felt like so much to keep a blog up, all the different elements. And over time, I've actually really come to enjoy that part of it. I like styling food. I like taking the pictures. And now I'm doing video. And I'm not a pro. Someone's not going to hire me to do a big shoot. But for my own purposes, it's been really satisfying. And I say that because anybody starting a business, you might be surprised to find the things that are hard in the beginning might actually become strengths or things that you come to love. Thank you for saying that because I do think it's an important thing for people to hear and to sort of hang in there because I think we're often surprised Mm -hmm. by what those things could be. For the sake of, again, the listener, we know you wrote the book and there's money that comes with the book. In the blog, people, especially when you started, monetizing a blog was often through advertising. Now that's become a little bit more complicated. Your platform is, it's wide. You're not selling Mm -hmm. a single product. What are some of the other ways you took advantage of or you see other people taking advantage of in your space when it comes to monetizing their content? So I do have ads on my site and they do generate a nice income, but it's not enough to pay the bills. Sure. And I think most people who do the kind of thing I do have lots of different income streams. So I've done three cookbooks. That's one. I do some freelance um, writing. Mm-hmm. I write in a lot for Simply Recipes. I've written a lot for some magazines, the Dim- Diminishing Universe of Magazines, but I still yeah. do some work with like Better Homes and Gardens and 
occasionally real simple. So that's another one. Collaborating with brands Mm -hmm. has been a lucrative source of income as well. And I'm pretty choosy about who I work with, which makes it sometimes challenging, but it can be really satisfying work. Um, And then I also do some teaching and speaking. And so that's another another place to look. And that multi-stream sort of model has been important, it sounds like, in sort of creating that Katie Morford world. Like it takes all of those things in concert with one another. Yeah. And I like all of those things. I like all of I mean, I'm a Gemini. I just like a variety. <laughs> I'm married to a Gemini and I'm raising two Geminis. So yes, I, I can attest to that. <laughs> That's helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Because I think a lot of people can't really unpack like when you have a blog, like how do you actually monetize that? And I think a lot of times it's thinking about the expertise that you're building and how you can monetize that expertise. It's not necessarily just the blog. Right. And the other thing is like, for example, Instagram is a platform that I'm on and I'm pretty active on. And I think of that as like my portfolio, Mm -hmm. like it makes whoever's, you know, following me, whether it's brands or magazines, I feel like it reminds people that I'm there sure. and that I have this expertise. And, you know, sometimes an opportunity comes up through that. I like the idea of utilizing social as that sort of portfolio. Mm-hmm. And it sort of works in reverse now. A lot of times people were coming to the blog first. That's how they got to know us. But I think yeah. often now it's they're going to social and it's what draws them in, whether it's extended work, like you talked about other brands or publications that want to work with you, or just us, the general user, we get to sort of yeah. uh, taste test what could be on Katie's blog. This is a question I wanted to ask because I, I hear this a lot. Um, when I was consulting and I was consulting people who perhaps wanted to write a book, they wanted to become an author. That was a dream. And I would say, well, you're essentially an entrepreneur. You have to think of yourself that that way, especially now when it's so hard to get a publisher mm-hmm. and some publishers will only look at you if you have built an audience and a following. Mm-hmm. What say you, Katie, about this idea that being an author, and you are more than that, as we've already described, but what would you say to that person who doesn't think becoming an author or pursuing becoming an author um, is an entrepreneurial endeavor? Well, I mean, I don't know the official definition of entrepreneur, but my idea of it is that from where I sit and, you know, people in my world who do the kind of work I do, it's, it's very entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're Colleen Hoover yeah. <laughs> or some <laughs> yeah. real, really major author yeah. who's, you know, certainly can support themselves entirely on a book deal and probably has a publisher bending over backwards to market your books and do everything. Sure. Most regular folks like myself, who are publishing books, it's a lot of hustle. First, it's finding your agent and trying to get an agent. And then there's the hustle of getting the publisher and then writing the book and all that. And then there's a a lot falls on, certainly in the cookbook world, I don't know if this is the case in other realms, but a lot of the marketing and so forth Mm -hmm. is on your shoulders. Yeah. With all of my books, I collaborated with brands to underwrite my book tours and you know, did giveaways um, using, you know, their products and found speaking events, you know, all that kind of stuff. And to me, that's all very entrepreneurial. Yes, I agree. But I think it's important to ask it so people get 
other voices. I wrote a book long, long time ago in 2009 that was published and it was a sort of how-to for female entrepreneurs. And I found very much, and even though we were published with McGraw-Hill, it was more of an educational tool. We did all the heavy lifting, Mm -hmm. getting the book tours, making sure that we were in all the Barnes and Nobles. We had their name behind us, but it was us doing the heavy lifting. And I found that it absolutely required that sort of entrepreneurial thinking. How can I make all these things work to support one another? Mm -hmm. So I was curious what your thoughts were. Of all the things you do, writing, teaching, writing, I would say for your blog versus writing a book. And I, I think also just creating recipes, you know, all these things, what of them is your favorite thing? What could you like, and working with brands, I should say, <laughs> what's the thing that you love? Like you could get lost in. I mean, do I have to, <laughs> if I have to pick one? Do you have to pick your one favorite child? No. <laughs> well, I will say, I will say, I do love, I do love the cooking and that's like, if I'm in a bad mood, I'm either going to go exercise yeah. or I'm going to cook. It's, it's very, um, I find it really satisfying, but I, what I really like about my work is, you know, the active creative process of cooking that's very physical and then balancing that with the sort of quiet tapping mm-hmm. away at my keyboard writing. So I, it's a perfect mix for me. It sounds like it's pulling from different parts of who you are. The fulfillment is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I I think that's important. And then what would you say is one thing you've learned about yourself through your work? Because you've learned Mm -hmm. about yourself a lot through your marriage, through raising children, through friendships, through being a daughter. But what's one thing that you've learned about yourself that you can point back to this particular work that you've been doing? I know I keep saying this word, but I think I have like a a driving need to be creative. Mm. I need to be creating something in in a creative mode in order to feel like quenched. And I I know that because there, you know, this in any type of when you're working for yourself, I feel like there's times when you're working tons of hours and then there's quiet periods where you, you don't have as much on your plate. And I realized during the quiet periods I'm like crafting, I'm like, you know, playing with clay. I I just have to be creating and and it really is part of like what nourishes my soul. And do you feel like that's something that even if you were to move away from this particular work that you'll always be doing, you'll always be finding that creativity? Yeah, I think if I wasn't doing this for work, I'd be doing something else creatively for work. And even in my fun time. I'm, I'm doing creative things. So it's just part of who I am. Probably something for us to pay attention to for those of us who don't quite know what's next for us to really think about what is it that we're doing in the downtime? Mm-hmm. What is it that we are doing mm-hmm. that we can get lost in? Totally. And how, how do we make sure that that's a part of the work that we may want to do or the, the way we want to be sort of living in the day to day? I think that's a key thing that you're saying. Yeah. And it's something I, I talk to my kids about because they're all this sort of interesting launch phase, yeah. you know, tour, tour in college ones out is, you know, where do you feel most at home? Even if it's something like, do you like to be in a quiet space? Do you like to have a lot of buzz around you? You know, what, what feeds you? And think about that when you come to think about what kind of work you want to do. Yeah. I wish we had that. 
Maybe you did. No, I didn't. I didn't. It took it took a long time, I think, to yeah. unpack that. Yeah, I, and I, and to some degree, I still I I think I still am. But that's what's great about midlife. <laughs> we still have time. And then what would you say to a woman? And maybe you've had this opportunity with friends who've said, oh my gosh, Katie, like you're killing it. I could never do what you're doing. And it's too late for me to start now. What would you say to her? I mean, I truly don't think it's ever too late. There are so many women in history that have started, you know, in midlife. And I think even Julia Child falls into yeah. that category. So, yeah. I mean, I genuinely think it's not too late. And I mean, I even say that to myself sometimes, but yeah, I just think tuning in, listening to yourself and um, having faith that if you follow a path that feels right, it'll end up somewhere good. Yeah, I agree. Somewhere along the way in these podcasts, someone had talked about not seeing anything as um, a failure, like pursuing whatever, Mm -hmm. seeing it more as data. It's feedback. It's informing kind of what's next for you. And I think there's a ton of freedom in viewing it that way. What would you say is next for you? Do you have any ideas on kind of what the next iteration or what the addition is to Mm -hmm. the Katie Morford writing, authoring, teaching world? I, again, I I tend to sort of move organically without a grand plan, but I am working on a new book proposal that I just sent to my agent. I'm not going to say what it is, but it's... Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You'll come back on and tell us about that one. Yeah. So that's kind of out there in the universe. Okay. And um, in the back of my mind, I have this idea at some point of wanting to work with new moms, Mm. maybe on a more personal level, you know, beyond books, maybe, I don't know if it's one-on-one, but I just feel like I look back on when I was a new mom and it's can be such a hard time. And I feel like you just throw everything into your family and your baby and not necessarily self-care. I know that's such an overused word, but just nourishing yourself, being kind to yourself, navigating how to feed your baby in the beginning, all those kinds of things that are really sometimes so hard for women. I, I, I sort of have in my mind working with that group at some point. Can you imagine having a you <laughs> talking to you when you were in your 20s and 30s, you know, having babies and making those sorts of decisions? Like what a gift that would be and what a difference that would make in those lives to have somebody who isn't necessarily related to you, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. who who could be sharing with you, like, here are some ways to navigate those things. Yeah. Here are some options for you. Well, you will come back, please, <laughs> on the podcast when this book to. idea comes out or when you pursue <laughs> uh, working with these women. And I think I also want to say when you were talking about kind of the the book thing, this will be book number four. Mm-hmm. And we will have in the show notes the three books, but can you just name them for us really quickly? You named the first one. Can you name the other two? So the first is Best Lunchbox Ever. The second mm-hmm. is Rise and Shine, Better Breakfast for Busy Mornings. And the third one's called Prep, The Essential College Cookbook. So it, the third one is really, I wrote that when my oldest was about to start college and I was sort of panicking, like she has no life skills. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's really arming you know, even high school and younger, and then through kind of college age into how to how to make food for yourself. 
I immediately hopped on Amazon to make sure it was available, that it hadn't sold out or something, because I want to get that one for my daughter and my son, who's a senior now and getting ready to to be launched. Yeah, perfect. So thank you for writing that. So before we let you go, uh, I have to go through our fast five with you. Okay. What is a hack or something that you like to share with your 40 plus girlfriends? And if it's food related, great. If it's not, share that with us too. Well, off the top, it always tends to be in the food space. So my big, there, I have a lot of hacks, Yeah. but something I tell people all the time is it's kind of like set yourself up for success and it's not hard to do. So when I get home from the grocery store and I'm unpacking my groceries, I try to carve out even, even if it's five minutes of time to do a few little things of food prep. So like put some eggs in a pot and hard boil them while you mm-hmm. strip the leaves off the kale and wash and chop it and then shake together a, a jar of vinaigrette. You know, a few things like that, I feel like goes so far towards being able to pull together a really nourishing lunch Yeah. when you're starving and instead of, you know, just whatever, eating junk or something that isn't that good, you can have a salad in like three minutes. So that's a biggie. Yeah, I've actually learned that lesson very recently, just the value of just prepping for myself because now that they're out and about and busy, I am grabbing things that they're not in and of themselves unhealthy, but they're, you know, it's not like it's a bag of Doritos to your, I think you make that reference with uh, your husband. Oh yeah. Something Mm -hmm. about like, and I'm still a real person or something. (laughs) We have Doritos during game days, which I appreciated, but it's, not necessarily nurturing my body yeah. to, to your point. And so it is that little bit of prep makes a big difference. Okay, thanks for that. And then what's something that you're reading right now that you're recommending to people? I just finished the book Demon Copperhead by Barbara mm. King- Kingsolver. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was incredible. It's okay. a hard read. Like it's it's a tough topic, but it blew my mind how good it was. Okay. Okay, we'll make sure to to add that to the show notes as well. What's a piece of advice that you would give a woman who has decided that she wants to kind of launch a new venture? Mm -hmm. What's something that you might say, hey, don't forget to do this, or you might want to make sure to start here? Uh, The first thing that pops into my mind is just be patient. Mm. (laughs) Be patient. And also, I think of intuition. Yeah. Really honing in on on what's right for you and trying to like block out there's so much noise of what you should be doing or what this other person is doing. If you can really get quiet and centered and listen to your truth and what your path is, I feel like that's really important. And I think at the end, that's what's going to make whatever you're doing stand out. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And it leads to like your own comfort and being who you are, it's your POV, mm-hmm. it's all of it comes through in paying attention to that. And being patient, thank you for that, because I think a lot of us are like, okay, I'm I ready. where are the people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I built it, where are they? And I know you have daughters, so I'm gonna focus this question on being not just about your younger self, but on these three girls. Mm-hmm. Like, what is one thing that you want to instill in them or empower them with when it comes to midlife and what they have to look forward to? Wrinkles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're real. They happen. Wear a sunscreen. No, I I think it's interesting because we live in such a youth-centric 
mm-hmm. culture where it's so prized. And yet I think midlife is a really great time. Yeah. Wrinkles aside, I feel like it's something to look forward to. And there's not been a time in my life when I've been more at peace in my own skin and self, more comfortable uh, speaking my truth mm. um, than I have as I, as I am now. And I think that's really, it's a really nice thing to, to look forward to. Yeah, and to know that I don't have to accomplish all of this before 40, because mm-hmm. there is actually life after 40. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. We need to get that message out to mm-hmm. to lots of people, Katie, be- beyond your daughters. But what a gift for them to know that and grow up in that certainty. And then, you know, this podcast is called Liberty Road because we want to help women liberate these dreams that they have for themselves. And we also know it's a winding road. But what does that word mean for you? How has this endeavor liberated you, Katie? Oh, gosh, that's tough. Yeah. When I think of liberty, I think of freedom. And there's something about working for yourself and creating your own path. And again, tapping into who you are and what your unique voice is that is very freeing. You're not having to... um, sort of live within the constraints of someone else's expectations mm-hmm. and you're just doing something that's uniquely you. And I think that's very freeing. Yeah. I love that. I love the not having to live within someone's constraints and you've done it well and you are such a great model of how people can do that. I'm really excited for our listeners to check out all the things that you've done, because I think Many of them will see themselves in your story and in in what you've been able to accomplish. Yes, you've been patient and it's been years, but it provides a great path for, for others. So thank you. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today and share your story. Thank you for having me. It's been fun chatting. Absolutely. And Liberty listeners, thank you for hanging out with me, for hanging out with Katie. We will have, as we said earlier, everything about Katie in the show notes so you can check her out for yourself. Until next week, bye. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty Road is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham and music by Jordan Flower.